I'm 19 years of age and I'm walking up Nassau Street in Dublin along that long wall of Trinity College which my granny used to graffiti with anti-British slogans in the 1920s. I turn right into Trinity Arts Block and then an immediate left through the big glass doors into the Douglas Hyde Gallery. And inside, my mind is blown open. There, on a shelf, in a little glass jar, is an artwork. But it's like no piece of art I've ever seen before. It consists of a jar of pollen. Pollen from a flower. That's it. Tiny particles of bright yellow pollen. Millions of microspores that had been painstakingly collected by the artist Wolfgang Leib from plants, just like a bee would, patiently and determinedly. It transfixed me. Maybe the simplicity of it, the vivid yellow powdery purity. Something in my belly was both stirred and calmed. It was just deeply moving, and I couldn't for the life of me understand why. It made me feel centred, grounded on this earth, in a really reassuring way. I think it was the essential quality of it. It represented the very essence of nature. The cellular microspores of male plants gathered with such serene honour by an individual from the flowers around where he lived in Germany, and then placed on this shelf. That jar of pollen upended my understanding of art. Up until then, I thought it was about creating a spectacle or a diversion. It could tickle the mind and the intellect, and maybe play with emotions, but not affect the belly or the visceral feel of my inner being. How did this simple jar of tiny grains, of of plant sperm really, trigger such complex and profound reactions? That was back in 1989, and even thinking about it now still triggers a similar reaction. But today, almost 30 years later, I want to introduce you to a man, a scientist actually, who might be able to explain those unnerving and thrilling emotions. This is The Almanac of Ireland, and today's story is all about beauty and the brain. I'm meeting Dr. Richard Roach on one of the nicer days of spring. A bit overcast, but um, I think we've still been spoiled for the, the last few weeks. He's an associate professor in the psychology department of Maynooth University. And his main interest is neuroscience, topics like ageing and dementia. It's a bit breezy. Mm-hmm. But Dr. Roach is also interested in aesthetics. And he's written a book called Why Science Needs Art that explores the relationship between these two disciplines and which also talks about what happens inside the brain when we're exposed to art. And fittingly enough, we've decided to meet in a place where there's plenty of beauty, the ornamental grounds of the Irish Museum of Modern Art in Dublin. Dr Roach has promised that he can help me unpack the emotions I feel when I'm moved by art. But I'm a bit wary, I have to say. Richard, it feels odd to talk to a scientist about beauty... 
Like, are these not totally contrasting elements? It can seem that way on the surface, and at first glance, they almost seem like they're poles apart. But if you go back to the history of psychology, some of the earliest experimental psychologists in the late 1800s, they were interested in all aspects of human experience and consciousness and what happens inside our heads. So it has a long history in the sciences, in psychology, in neuroscience, and that continues right up to today. My interest is piqued, but part of me doesn't know if I want my instincts of beauty to be analysed. The, the question of whether we should do this or not is probably a very personalistic one. For some people, and from my point of view, to know what's happening in the brain while we appreciate a, a great piece of art, for me it enhances the enjoyment of it. It allows us to appreciate what the artist is doing instinctually or intuitively to trigger this response in the brain, to tap into particular aspects of how the brain is organised or what the brain likes to respond to, which resonates with people or has a huge impact on them. I think probably the analogy I'd use is maybe like a magic trick. Some people prefer not to know how the trick is done, and for some people, knowing the workings of it and the mechanism of it enhances the enjoyment. Whether I like it or not, scientists have managed to work out how that magic trick is done. By placing people in powerful fMRI scanners, researchers have been able to watch what their brains get up to when they're looking at a piece of art. And as it turns out, our brains love shapes. particular types of shapes. Things like symmetry, things like continuity, things like continuation. If we see a, a straight line that's partially obscured by something, we tend to assume that it's a continuous line, not two separate ones that's been blocked. So the way that particular stimuli are arranged in our visual field can attract the brain or draw its attention or engage it in a particular way. So we're now in IMA, in the Irish Museum of Modern Art, and beside it is the formal gardens. And it's almost like a classic example of what you were talking about, this absolute symmetrical, laid-out order. Like, it's a pleasure garden. It's a garden that was created as a piece of art, not as anything practical. It wasn't going to grow vegetables. It was just formed in the 18th century for elegant ladies to walk around. Yeah, and that symmetry... And the idea of symmetry seems to go way back with humans and how we respond to things. And there are theories that, say, in relation to facial symmetry, that it's, in biological terms, considered a sign of good health because asymmetry can often be associated with infection or disease or some physiological problem. The other interesting thing about some of these principles, though, is what can be interesting for the brain is also to violate these principles as well. So cases of asymmetry in art can be as attractive or as engaging as pure symmetry. And in some cases, when it comes to, say, a landscape, our brains tend to reject or not respond well to perfect symmetry because we know it's unnatural and it rarely ever occurs in the natural world. So these preferences can be triggered by their presence or by violations of the principle at the same time. So, in other words, like the, I'm thinking a classic symmetrical face is almost all, all portraiture to a certain degree until along comes, I'm just thinking, Picasso then and the nose is on one side, the two eyes on the other side. And that was shocking. That was displeasing at first, wasn't it? And now it seems to be like our, our epitome of art. 
Yeah, uh, and I suppose the the concept behind it was revolutionary as well. And I suppose it went hand in hand with the invention of the camera and the realization that the role of artists could change and wouldn't have to represent exactly what was in front of them. They could represent the conceptual idea of a face rather than a snapshot of a particular face. That's a lot to take in, isn't it? The idea that beauty isn't so much in the eye of the beholder as in the brain of the beholder. It's a powerful idea. Anyway, that thing that happens inside my brain when I'm looking at art, I want to see it in action. So we wander over to one of the outdoor artworks here in the grounds of the museum. Coming across another artwork here in front of, is that a, I think that's a line of lime trees. It's a piece by a French conceptual artist, Bernard Venet, and it's intriguing. 217.5 degrees arc by 12. The artwork is large, taller than me, and it's composed of a giant upright U-shape made of a rusty metal girder. Done in 2008 out of Corten's steel, out of that lovely rusty steel. The U, though, is very circular, and there are six of them, stacked one behind the other, all leaning back at an angle. There's a second group of circular U-shapes behind the first one, and they intersect the first one, like two incomplete intersecting circles from the Olympics logo. And the fact that I've just referred to this shape as an incomplete circle hints at what's happening in my brain as I look at it. Our brain will automatically without us having to exert any effort. It will fill in blanks. It will fill in the blank spaces in something that we see. And there's something inherently pleasing about that. Our brain enjoys solving problems or playing detective or trying to figure out what goes in that missing space. So anything that's unfinished or anything that has a a piece that seems to be absent, our brain will immediately jump on and try to fill in that gap. And so it's not necessarily that the artist is clinically thinking of this, but he would have imagined, yeah, if I make these big girders and almost make a circle but don't make a circle, it's going to be pleasing to him because he's going to think, God, that circle would be lovely if, it was a, if, I, if, it, if I closed the loop. And so for him, he thinks, I'm going to leave the top off. And then it's just by dint, because we're all humans, we all share that same urge, that same... Yeah, yeah, and that may have been where the, the concept originated in, in the artist's uh, brain in, in the first place, this yearning for completion and for closing the circle and in this case literally closing the circle Is that why a semi-clad nude can often be more alluring? Yeah, so this is another one of these ideas This is they call it the peekaboo effect Sometimes it's more interesting and it's more enticing for our brain to extrapolate and to fill in the gaps and to imagine Okay, so we know what our brains like. They like certain shapes. They like to solve puzzles and to fill in gaps. But what about those emotions I felt when I was looking at the pollen artwork I told you about earlier? Why did I feel like everything in me just centred? My chaotic thought process slammed on the brakes and I was completely still. Well... Neuroaesthetics, which is the name of this new branch of science that investigates the overlap of art and the brain, has figured that out too. One of the the things that neuroaesthetics has started to reveal is a network in the brain that's activated when we appreciate art, which is called the default mode network. 
So essentially, when we look at a piece of art, many areas of the brain that are involved in things like memories or imagination or even regions that tap into emotion spark up. Those regions become activated and harmonious when we're exposed to art or we're looking at something that we find nice or aesthetically pleasing. They also kick in when we're listening to a story or when we're reading a story, when we're watching a film or when we're just idling I and mean, when the brain is sort of happily in neutral. And is that a good thing? Does it have therapeutic value? Yeah, there's another line of experimentation at the moment that suggests that giving the brain downtime is really important. So things like mind wandering or daydreaming seem to be very good for the brain and actually very beneficial to our productivity. So we're allowing our brain a little time to, to reset almost by activating this default mode network. And this default mode network can also go some way to explaining why we can have such a profound emotional response to art. Some of the areas in the default mode network are very adjacent to emotional processing areas in the brain. So a, a profound piece of art that moves you emotionally will activate emotional regions in the cortex and subcortex that make us feel very profound responses and profound emotions. Again, it seems so odd to be consulting a scientist about how I should appreciate art. <laughs> so, but really what you're saying is I should stand and then just allow the brain go to work, but maybe work isn't the right word. Yeah. Just maybe allow the brain to, to ramble freely yeah. as you appreciate what you're looking at and allow those memories and associations to come in, allow the experience to basically envelop you. So, okay, if I'm realizing that actually an artwork is preconditioned, it's a, a manipulative machine to get what I am going to find nice, will another culture find the same things as I find nice? Let's say for Aboriginal art wouldn't have that symmetry. My impression is there's a load of curls and dots and sort of a, a chaos of color. Yeah, so I suppose the, the culture and the environment that people evolve in and, and grow up in and the, the nature of their brains will, to some extent, dictate what people find attractive, as will experience and society. But these very basic perceptual principles seem pretty common across, uh, across all brains, basically, wherever they're from. So what did Wolfgang Leib's pollen do to my brain? What was triggered? Dr. Roach said they were free to either track each minute reaction of art through the brain or just regard it as a spell, a magical trick. I think I prefer the latter. Certainly the simplicity, the essential quality and potency of the colours affected me. But there were other things too. Things that are beyond reason. Memories and sensation that are as elusive and abstract as a dream. And I don't want to define them. Just as the artwork sidestepped the rational brain all those years ago, that's how I want the memory of it to be too. A precious experience, initiated or catalyzed by art, but not limited to it. Often, the undefinable is most alluring. Richard, you've made me look at not only art, but my way of looking at things, at everything, uh, differently. So where I was just going happily along thinking, okay, that's aesthetically pleasing, I like that, I don't like that, that's beautiful. 
I'm now having to think that there's a complex web of processing and programs and conditioning going on in that. Will, does it enrich my life? Will it enrich my life, do you think? It can do, I think, depending on how you look at it. I think if you, know, if you take it from the point of view that all this stuff is happening almost instantaneously in our brain as we walk around, and we don't really notice it until we stop and consciously think about it, it's astounding. Like our, our brains are just phenomenal information processing machines. They're by far superior to the most complex supercomputer, and they evolved naturally through evolution. So inside our head is the most complex object in the known universe. And it does so much that we're not even aware of. It solves problems, it fills in gaps, it responds to particular things. Really, it's it's such a fascinating organ in, in humans and other species. And you've helped me see that my brain and all brains are so much more richer, so much more complex. A brain is basically a work of art. I, I would totally agree. Thanks for that, Richard. Not at all. Thank you. The Almanac of Ireland was presented by me, Moncon McGann, and produced by Colette Kinsella. It's a Red Hair Media production for RTU Radio.